Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians together. We find ourselves picking up in chapter 8 this morning, right where we left off last week. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we are going to look at the entirety of the chapter this morning from verse 1 down through verse 13. A little bit of a more lengthy portion, but what I'd like to do is read the entirety of our text Uh, And then we'll pray and ask God to speak to us and look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not their conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And Father, we thank you for giving to us the word of God by your Holy Spirit, inspiration, and Lord, that we can trust that what we look at today is just as alive and powerful and a word and testimony of your voice speaking to our spirit today as it was the very original day in which it was penned. So, Lord, we pray, prepare us personally. Give us an ear to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church this morning through this portion of the Word of God. And speak now, Lord, through your Spirit's ministry. And we ask your blessing on your Word expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, what is more important, do you think, to God in how a church family functions as they dwell together with each other? Is it knowing and needing to prove that our ideas are right on a given subject or a matter at hand, whether it's just something of an issue or a particular subject or even something that we believe morally or theologically, whereby we need to be able to have things the way that we want and others need to conform to our preference because we are the one that is right and they are the one that is wrong? Or... Is God more concerned about us walking in love towards people, even though they may actually hold a different view, whether it be on some secondary matter theologically or maybe just some subject matter or preference or idea on any given subject? And therefore, we're willing to be flexible and gracious so that we don't stumble people who have a different view than us in a hurtful way or demand our own idea to be accepted as right, and therefore we maintain and continue to have healthy relationship because we chose to walk in love. Well, this is what our chapter is addressing this morning regarding church family life. Paul's going to address here how to handle the exercise of liberties, different freedoms that we have as a follower of the Lord Jesus by taking into consideration the effect of how our exercise of that freedom or liberty we may possess, which another possesses as well, what impact that actually has upon other people in the church family. Now, 
in light of the passage, let me take a minute to define, as I'm using that word already, liberty. We talk sometimes about Christian liberty. Let me just take a minute on the front side of this to define what I mean by that when I say Christian liberty. The word liberty or Christian liberty does not mean the freedom to do whatever I want as a Christian. That's not what we're referring to. Christian liberty is basically the freedom for a Christ follower to make a decision about either doing something or not doing something which is not directly addressed specifically in the word of God. In other words, there are things that are directly spoken about in Scripture that we are commanded and told we should do, we must do. There are commands and things we should do as a Christian. There are other things in the Word of God that are forbidden. God's Word directly, specifically says that we should not do something in a very direct way, whether in direct speech or in principle. So God's Word at times gives to us in direct statements or clear principles, telling us that we are commanded that we cannot participate in certain things. And then there are places in the word of God where we are commanded that we are supposed to do something in order to honor God. Yet there are also areas where God's word does not either encourage or instruct us that we have to do something. And there are other areas in the word of God where we are not specifically told we are forbidden from doing something. And these become areas of what we call liberty. As a result, there is freedom from the Lord in those areas to yield to our own conscience and what our own conscience is comfortable with or at peace with in regards to our own personal relationship with the Lord and the testimony of his Holy Spirit to our lives. So since scripture in some area may not address forbidding it or it may not address requiring having to do something, we are given a freedom to hold our own view in regards to a personal conviction before the Lord. For example, if I were just to mention a few, how a person dresses for church attendance. Nowhere does the word of God specifically say you must wear a three-piece suit and wear your Sunday best to honor God, and that's required if you're going to honor God at a worship service. Nor does the word of God say it's forbidden to wear a pair of jeans or a pair of shorts to church or to wear a hat to church or again, all the, all these other aspects that we could weigh out on either side. God's word doesn't either forbid one thing or does God's word as well require a certain way that we dress when we attend and we worship God. Nor does God's word speak to us about a particular style or format of church meeting that the, the church gathering has to have this particular style to the way it functions or this particular style of music can be used or can't be used. These are liberties. How about movies? Can Christian watch certain movies or can't they watch certain movies? What kind of music can a Christian listen to? What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? Can Christians dance? Oh my goodness. I can tell you this, having pastored for years and attending a lot of Uh, gatherings afterwards where they celebrate. This is what I can tell you with a lot of church people. Can Christians dance? From what I've seen, some can and some can't. Or better wise, some shouldn't. (laughs) Uh, So again, is this a a area we, we have to decide about? You know, what about smoking cigarettes? Can Christians smoke cigarettes? Can a Christian drink a glass of wine? as long as they don't get drunk, or can they have a beer with their meal as long as they you know, use moderation? Uh, how does a Christian educate their child? Uh, can they go to public school? Can they attend a private Christian school? You know, should they be homeschooled? Again, these are areas of liberty in the Christian life. How about tattoos? How about piercings? Does God's word forbid, or again, these are things that are not directly addressed, forbidden in the word of God. These are areas of liberties. How about our recreational activities? How about Christmas trees? It's Christmas time. Is it okay for a Christian family to have a Christmas tree? Or even let's go one step further. How about most recently, do Christians wear masks or shouldn't Christians wear masks? I don't see it addressed in the word of God. These are liberties in regards to the spiritual life that each one has to come to their own convictions about. Well, this passage shows the Corinthian church had their own unique challenges in their day. There was a specific situation going on. How to handle liberty in the Lord as they dwelt together and assembled 
as a church family. And Paul addresses this as his Holy Spirit leading him gives through him some guidance to us in regards to how to handle these areas of liberties in regards to relationship with one another. Look with me back in verse 1. Paul begins by simply saying, Now concerning things offered to idols. So this is again addressing a question that the church had written to him about, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Paul mentions how they had asked him certain questions. This was one of their questions. Paul, what do we do on this area? We're having a problem in the congregation here. People have differences of opinion regarding concerning meat offered to idols and whether or not it was okay to eat it. We have to understand, in the Greco-Roman culture, where the city of Corinth was located and the church of Corinth was, there were many temples of various types of pagan gods and idolatry that existed among the city of Corinth. And it was very common practice in these pagan temples where there were idols worshipped in these worship systems. The worshipers would bring animal sacrifices to curry favor from their god or the idol that they worshipped to that deity seeking its favor. And when they would offer this sacrifice upon the altar, a portion of the meat was just burned on the altar. Another portion of the meat was then given to the priest or whoever was attending and offering your your meat sacrifice for you. And then another portion of the meat was often usually partaken of by the worshiper themselves or their family as they worshiped. But as you can imagine, there was also a lot of excess meat. So there was leftover meat from that animal that was offered. Now, especially when you had multiple worshipers coming at the same day, bringing their offerings of meat. As a result, many pagan temples had all this excess meat from the offerings that were brought to these idols, and they had to figure out something to do with it. Well, it became the practice culturally to basically sell that meat so that the food was not wasted. And quite honestly, the pagan temples also did this to help raise funds to help support their continuing pagan idolatry and worship at the temple. So it became sort of common practice. Many of these pagan temples also doubled sort of like butcher shops or deli markets, as well as being places where you could go and and worship your idol there. Some even think they even cooked the meat and had sort of out front of the temple area or in a nearby area, sort of a little restaurant or cafe where you could eat then the cooked meat at a reduced price. It was made available to people, all this excess meat. Well, here's where differences of opinion came in among fellow Christians And the backdrop of our text, which helps to understand it. As you can understand, here's this excess meat that was once used to make an offering and a sacrifice to an idol in a pagan temple. And now it's either offered for sale or it's cooked up in restaurant style and available to go there and eat a steak out front in the courtyard area. And the Christians were struggling because they had differences of opinion whether or not it was okay to eat that meat that had once been given in a sense, as a sacrifice to an idol. And some Christians, knowing that those idols and deities being sacrificed to were not even real gods, and that meat was just meat, it was nothing of spiritual you know, uh, content, it was just physical food, and that same meat supplied the same nutritional value to their physical body, no matter what its origin or use had been, understanding grace, they could kind of separate the physical thing from the spiritual thing, and therefore they saw it as a simple way to get a good piece of meat for a cheap, maybe reduced price, and therefore they would buy this leftover meat that had been offered at the pagan temples, and it did not bother their conscience at all. They would say grace, thank God for the reduced meat, and they would enjoy their filet. And it didn't bother them the slightest bit in their conscience. But there were other Christians, which we can see in our text here, who had a much more sensitive perspective towards this meat that was offered to idols. And to them, they would want nothing to do with this. They felt that meat was used for a purpose originally, which participated in idol worship. And therefore, in their minds, they felt that was used to honor a false god, even a demon. And therefore, that was a horrible thing. And they could not even think about 
giving one penny to buy that piece of meat if it would somehow support that pagan temple or if in some way they were participating in the idolatry worship that had happened by eating that meat. And they felt very uneasy in their conscience about eating that meat. So they would completely abstain from ever doing it. They would pay double the price over at the Corinthian Walmart to get a good piece of meat that they knew had not been offered to these pagan idols because they felt it was just a completely wrong thing to participate in eating that kind of meat. And they felt very uneasy as well about the thought that other Christians could actually do this. And it made them feel very uncomfortable for themselves and even confused and offended how others could do such things. And they were stumbling over the reality of how could my brother be doing that when he knows that that meat was once offered to an idol at one point in time in the past. So this was the dilemma that was existing. So Paul, in light of this, look with me in verse one, he says, now concerning things offered to idols, he says, we know that we all have knowledge. So he begins by addressing the mindset of those who were comfortable eating this meat who had once been offered to idols and were probably no doubt, as you can sense, feeling frustrated with those who were more sensitive and strict in their perspective in regards to doing this. And their attitude sort of became, in a little bit of a unloving way, come on, these weak-minded people in the church, I mean, come on, they they just need to get over this. And they just need to get beyond, they need to trust God. It's just a piece of meat. There's nothing spiritual about meat. They need to get over their weak-minded attitude. And Paul says, look, look, we know that we all possess a degree of knowledge in understanding this issue and proper theology. He says, but ultimately, Paul's going to say, it's not foremost a matter about who knows more and who's right on an issue and who's wrong on an issue. Sometimes there are more important things than just proving that you're right in your knowledge and someone else is wrong in their knowledge and thinking that you know more than others, you have superior knowledge on this subject and others do not, and they're just weak-minded and naive and gullible, and they just need to get over their weak mindset. Look, Paul says, look at the end of verse 1, to those feeling like this or having that attitude regarding not doctrine but just liberties, he says the end of verse 1, look, knowledge puffs up. You see what he says? But love, love builds up. So Paul says here, focusing on just having knowledge or just being right all the time, being the most informed person with superior facts, he says that tends to cause a person to become puffed up. This is what knowledge or emphasis on knowledge foremost tends to do. It makes somebody become puffed up with pride, to become arrogant in their attitude and their mindset due to their belief, what? That they are superior because they know what's right and others don't. And so therefore that superiority complex makes a person begin to unfortunately in pride become puffed up and they start to tear other people down verbally. They start to uh, you know, treat people in unkind and ungracious ways, in an uncaring way of pride. They just kind of start steamrolling everybody around them because they think they're just weak-minded people and they just don't know what's right and what's wrong. And as a result, they focus more on being right as the more important thing rather than doing what's right which is walking in love and caring about people the way that God would want us to from time to time. Because Paul says, look, in contrast to knowledge puffing a person up in pride, he says the focus should be foremost on love because that's what edifies. And that's what God's word tells us to do, to edify people. The idea is to edify, to build up other people, to uplift other people, to strengthen and help other people. That's what we should be focusing on. Because when we love people, and we want to exercise love towards people foremost, it makes us willing to be flexible even if we do think we're right and we do think other people are wrong. It makes us willing to be gracious and patient with others who hold different views because we care more about maintaining relationship and strengthening people and building people up more than we do just winning debates 
and trying to prove that we are right and others are wrong and make everybody harshly conform to our perspective and that they need to just change their mind and get on board with our right ideas rather than struggling with all their weaknesses. Look, the Bible is telling us here, having knowledge may make us feel superior. It may make us feel important. But God's word says having love and showing mercy and grace That's what helps strengthen the church. That's what helps build people up in an attitude of love as we express God's love to one another. He goes on, verse 2, to say, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, the idea is I know way more theologically, I know way more on this subject matter, whatever it may be, anybody thinks they know anything, Paul says he knows nothing, yet as he ought. To know, So for those whose attitude was kind of they think they know it all, that's the idea here, verse 2, on a particular subject, Paul says that's actually an indication of their own ignorance. One translation renders this, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Look, God who does know all, because he's God, God who does have the right perspective on everything. God who does have perfect knowledge, God says when you and I as people start to behave like we know it all in our attitude or the way that we talk about things incessantly on a particular subject, God says, look, when you start to behave that way, you are indirectly indicating quite honestly that you actually know very little at all because you may know a whole lot about that subject. Or you may know a whole lot about some theological issue, but God says, quite frankly, he says, you don't really know very much yet about what you really ought to know. That is what really matters to God, what really matters to him foremost. And a lot of times we're indicating our own ignorance because we're overlooking what God wants us to really know, which is how to conduct ourselves properly in relation to a matter at hand or towards other people, which is then walking in love towards them which I'll mention in a moment, is exactly what God did with people who were wrong and ignorant and blinded. He walked in love towards us. Look what he says, verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known, that is relationally, acknowledged, recognized by him or by God. So again, we begin to see it's about loving God and being in right relationship with God, which makes you what? a more loving person foremost because God is love. And when you experience God and you're loving God and you're experiencing God's love, then the fruit of the spirit becomes love in your life. And he says, look, that's what's most important in God's view. That's what God endorses. What God knows and recognizes is love. That's the thing that he's chiefly concerned about. And again, think about it because that's exactly, as I said a moment ago, how God relates to all of us experientially as human beings. Think through this with me if you would. God was clearly right. Every one of us in humanity was clearly wrong. But though God is right and we are wrong, what did God do? Did God say, look, I'm right. You people are wrong. Get your acts together. What did God do? God was right. We were wrong. Yet God humbly met us in our ignorance. He humbly met us in our weakness by humbling himself, coming to us in our weakness, and kindly doing what would help us best ultimately. Though we were so ignorant and so blinded, God condescended in love and came in humility to help us. Look, God is not impressed with how much I think or know in comparison to others. God is impressed with and endorses me loving, as he says, verse 3, loving God so much that out of loving God so much, I want to do what pleases God and what pleases God. Well, how did Jesus simplify that? Jesus said, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, let me simplify it for you. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second most important thing is this, love your neighbor. Love God, love people. If I love God and want to do what pleases God, I should be seeking on loving God and pleasing God and then expressing God's love to people by demonstrating that in my practice towards them. And again, demonstrating love and practicing love rather than focusing foremost on being willing and and concerned about always winning intellectual debates with people. 
on issues or subjects or, again, whatever it may be. Yet, sadly, a common error for all of us, even as Christians at times, a very common error even for Christians because we hold convictions and and we we care about things that are righteous and we don't know what's right and wrong but sometimes that really backfires to where a lot of times as christians sadly we focus more on promoting our knowledge on a subject and debating you know you know truths and subjects and issues and, and how we relate to people instead of humbly walking in love with people and caring about people and allowing them the freedom to hold a different view than us and being compassionate and maybe even, imagine, deferring to someone else that we don't even agree with just to meet them where they're at and be gracious to them. I'm not saying agree with them, but deferring to them, even in their perspective, in such a way whereby we maintain relationship and we meet them where they're at in their struggles so that we can actually help them more ultimately, which is exactly what Jesus did. He met us in our weakness and showed that kind of love to us. Well, Paul now begins to directly apply this subject with the issue of relating to one another in the church. Look what he says, verse four. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, he says, we know that an idol, Paul says, is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So he says, we understand both from scripture as well as the enlightenment from the Holy Spirit given to us inside of us. Paul says, look, we understand that, uh, honestly, some dead fake idol, some statue in a temple is really, he says, it's nothing. See what he says, verse 4, he says, an idol is nothing. We know that. We know that that statue is just an empty metal or wooden statue that people are bowing down to and offering sacrifices to. And he says, and that there is no other true real God than the one true God. Verse five, he says, for even if these so-called gods, notice he uses little g, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, verse six, there is one God the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. So Paul acknowledges, we're all aware people are gonna worship other things. He says people do worship other things. We, We understand that. That's simply done, Paul says, in human ignorance and spiritual blindness. And indeed, look what he says in in verse five. He says, these, he calls them so-called gods. Again, people may think they're gods, but he calls it a little g, and he says they're, they're so-called gods. Again, indicating people may think they're a true god or a deity when they worship, but he says this is just false deception spiritually. And we understand people are blinded and misguided. It's just some false deity man has created and now decides to worship as a religious practice. Interesting, Isaiah and Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophets, they refer to this and even kind of the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the craziness of how people would worship idols. They would talk about in the Old Testament prophets how a man would go out and cut down a tree and then he would use part of the tree, chop it up to burn in a fire to warm up his home. Then he would take another part of the tree and he would use that to make some furniture. And then the third part of the tree he would take and he would fashion into a statue and he would overlay it with silver or gold and then he would bow down to it and say, you are my God, you are my God. And and the prophets were saying, this is crazy. From the same tree, you use fuel for fire, the same piece of wood you also make into your chair and then another piece of that same tree you fashion into a statue and then you fall down before it and worship it as your God. And again, this is the understanding. The depravity of the human mind, when we reject our creator, we'll worship anything. Jeremiah 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. He wasn't made by men. He made mankind. That's why Paul says in verse six, yet for us, we understand there's one God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. He's saying, we understand with clarity now that we've been saved, that the father in heaven offers us personal relationship with him and his son, Jesus Christ, in a living way. That's where all things come from. It's not through religious rituals or routines. He's always gonna say it's not whether we eat meat or don't eat meat. That's not what spiritual life is about. We understand that. Ultimately, remember Jesus simplified what spiritual life was really about in John chapter 15. It's about staying in right relationship with, 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 15, Jesus talked about the importance not of keeping religious rituals or following certain routines or, uh, you know, or what are our little rules of what's right and wrong in life as the Pharisees would want to keep. Jesus said, no, it's about relationship with me. Just remain in a relationship with me. And if you stay connected to me, you will become fruitful spiritually. And he said, for apart from me, No matter what things you do, apart from a relationship with me, Jesus said you can do nothing of spiritual fruitfulness, nothing that really matters fruitfully to God. But if we remain in connection to Christ, right relationship with the Lord, that is what spiritual life is about. Where are we at in relationship to God the Father and to his son, Jesus Christ? This is what is most essential, not all the other non-essential things people get all encumbered with. Well, Paul begins to directly apply now this handling of differences of opinions and how we would choose at times to exercise our liberty that we feel is right and acceptable for our life and that we're entitled to participate in. Look what he says going on now through the remainder of the chapter. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge that is right spiritual knowledge of relationship with God and that an idol is nothing and so forth. He says, So therefore, with consciousness of the idol, verse 7, until now, they eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and then their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul begins to point out there were some who were truly struggling within themselves, in their conscience, of this idea of partaking and eating meat that had once been used to give an offering to an idol. And Paul mentions here the root of the challenge. It was a struggle in their own conscience, he tells us here. It was a struggle in their conscience, feeling that doing such was improper or just inappropriate. Now, when we talk about in the Bible, and it's mentioned a few times here, the conscience, we're talking about that inward part of our life that God has created every person with a conscience, which is kind of like the internal judge inside of us, given to us by God for our decision making. And our conscience is that inward part of us, like an internal judge that evaluates things, and then it decides what's right and what's wrong, or what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, or if something is moral or immoral, or appropriate or inappropriate. That's what a natural, healthy, working conscience does. So that means if you have a healthy conscience, it's a great thing, because that's often where God testifies to us and speaks to us. A good conscience keeps you on track. If you have a clear and a clean conscience, you can know you're usually doing what is right. However, you can also damage and defile your conscience and disregard your conscience. And then your conscience can get seared and damaged and it can greatly mislead you. And you have no conscience about anything. So that's not good either. Well, look, just like, as he's going to talk about the conscience here, just like there are different types of judges, right? different types of judges that exist with different leanings. For example, you can have a justice that is very, very conservative, or you can have a judge in justice that is more liberal. And so you can have one type of judge that is very strict and rigid in their perspectives, and they never alter or deviate. You can have another judge who's more willing to be a little bit more flexible at times and maybe consider some variation and variables in different matters that may arise from time to time. Well, as an illustration, the idea being another aspect of our conscience, this kind of internal judge within every one of us that evaluates matters for decisions, sometimes in our conscience, some people have a very sensitive and strict conscience. Other people maybe have a little bit more of a relaxed conscience, Both types of consciences can get off in extremes in their interpretations or how they evaluate things. Both types of consciences can have errors at points and times. Paul here first addresses, and then he goes on to the other, but he first addresses the error of those who have a weak conscience in a particular matter. And this particular matter was over the eating of meat offered to idols, which was causing them to struggle. He says there in verse 7, those whose consciences were in a weak state. So the idea there is their conscience being in a weaker condition, having a consciousness that that meat was once offered to an idol. This disturbed and unsettled them and their sensitivity to knowing that 
outweighed the greater knowledge mentally that an idol is nothing at all but a dead statue, and there's only one God anyway, and it's just a piece of meat. But as a result, their conscience, he says, their being weak becomes defiled by the idea of eating meat that was once offered to an idol. And the idea is that it becomes polluted and they feel so guilty over it, they become uneasy in their hypersensitivity to feel like, oh my goodness, that would be doing something wrong, made them feel such guilt inside that the consciousness of that caused them to really struggle. But he says the problem was it was because their conscience being weak in a weak condition, that's why it becomes defiled. And see, sometimes people with a weak conscience tend to become by nature extremely strict in their views regarding certain liberties and freedoms that we may have in the Christian life. Sometimes those with a weak conscience become very rigid in their ideas. And as a result, they feel like that doing certain things, which may be liberties and areas of freedom, if they have a weak and strict conscience, they feel like doing certain things are utterly wrong in God's sight. They also at times can tend to be very strict in regards to feeling like doing certain things are absolutely essential if you're a real Christian because real Christians do these things or real Christians or spiritual Christians, they would never do these kind of things. And those who tend to have this weaker conscience that's a little bit more rigid and strict tend to be hypersensitive. But notice the Bible identifies the struggle there For their conscience, notice the Holy Spirit uses the term repeatedly through the verses ahead, is that their conscience is in a weak state. See, sometimes due to a lack of understanding God's grace and biblical truths, what the person with a weak conscience needs is actually growing a little bit in the area of a greater understanding of what it means to have a standing in grace and live by grace and know God's word a little better and to hold a stronger view of Scripture in comparison to a stronger view of just their personal convictions about matters. And this can be an area where it's important. Those who are more strict and rigid in this area of Christian liberty may have felt they were more holy. They may have thought they were more righteous, and you can understand how that would work. Hey, we don't eat that meat like those people do. We're strict, serious Christians, so we would never do such a thing and participate in that. But notice, please don't miss, the Bible here identifies them in verse 7 as those being weak. He's going to say in the verses down below, as we read in our opening of the text, that these are actually those, he calls them, who are the weaker brothers. He doesn't call them the stronger brothers. He calls them the weaker brothers. Interesting enough, Romans 14, which is a great companion passage to this, I encourage you to read Romans 14 in connection to this passage at some point. Romans 14 says this, bear with and accept with the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Look, being strict or legalistic in spirit as a Christian is not an indication that you are stronger spiritually than other people. And sometimes that's a misguided view to those who default and kind of tend to lean in that direction. Sometimes those who are a little bit more legalistic in their attitude about certain things think that they are stronger and more righteous But the Bible says, God says, that can actually sometimes be an indication that you are actually the weaker person spiritually because you have a weaker understanding of God's grace to some degree and are a little bit more hypersensitive to this type of thing rather than understanding how to live in grace and trust that you're righteous by your faith in Christ and know that God loves you and we're not earning his approval by whether, again, we dance or don't dance or whether we watched a movie or, again, that you have that growth in that area and sometimes that's a necessary thing. Well, look what he says, verse 8, going on. He says, but food does not, look, he just addresses the subject, food does not commend us to God. It doesn't earn God's acceptance. For neither if we eat do we become the better, 
nor if we do not eat and refrain, he says, are we the worst. So he's saying, look, what we eat or don't eat, it doesn't add to our spiritual standing. It doesn't detract from our spiritual standing. It doesn't help us more in relationship with God or harm our relationship with God. Again, the Holy Spirit through Paul is just saying, it's just food. It's food. It, it, Jesus himself even addressed this, remember, on one occasion. Jesus, when he was confronted with a similar thing, he said, look, food goes into the stomach and it's eliminated from the body. But what Jesus said, what really matters is what's going on in the heart of a person. Because what comes out of a person's heart is usually the greater matter at hand because that reveals the condition of their heart. Again, spirituality is not about, folks, listen, earthly things whether it's eating this, whether it's participating in that, whether it's our preference on a subject or our idea about a matter, whether it's a lifestyle habit, you know, or some conviction that we hold on an issue very strongly and we really think we're right and everybody else is wrong. It's about our heart condition before God. That is where spirituality stems from. Paul says in Romans 14, it's not eating or drinking different kinds of food. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What are we experiencing with God? That is the primary matter. Paul then applies this now on the other side to those not who were uncomfortable with eating the meat, but he now begins to address and instruct those who were comfortable eating the meat that had been offered to idols, and they were exercising their liberty And they were exercising their liberty, and Paul says, look, let's address those doing that as well. Verses 9 through 12 do that. He says, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you of knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not their conscience, who is weak, be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So Paul now here begins to give some great principles to those who are enjoying their liberty in some area of the Christian life that was a gray area and that was a matter of personal conviction. He gives here, I think, a few principles. The first one I would draw your attention to from verse 9 is simply this, is that those who are comfortable participating in certain liberties should not, in a selfish and careless way, go about that. If you're comfortable participating in a Christian liberty, you should not do it in a selfish, careless way, but rather, listen, in a cautious way where you consider others and the influence that may have upon them. So again, not careless, not selfish, but cautious, thinking about, hmm, if I do this, I'm going to take into consideration how might that also influence my brother or my sister in the Lord or other people in the church family. Those who ate the meat, Paul says, verse 9 there, he says, if you're enjoying that liberty, be careful lest your liberty of doing that become a stumbling block to those who are weak and struggling with that subject. Again, you don't want to put an example, Paul says before them, where you're okay with eating that meat, but then they see you do that or hear you did that, and they become tripped up in the subject with a weaker conscience over it, because sometimes what may be okay for me may not be okay for someone else, or what may be okay for you may not be okay for someone else in their life. And we need to stay aware of that reality in Christian love and be conscious that indulging a liberty may be fine for you in some area, but it may be something, listen, that really hinders another person who is your brother or sister in God's family because they see you doing that thing or they hear that you did that thing. And maybe it may be an area of real weakness for them. And because you do that and you can handle it, For them, if it's an area of real weakness, to see or hear that you did that, it may tempt them to then stumble and go down a very dangerous road for them that may really trip them up and stumble them spiritually. Or you may stumble them because maybe they just feel so strongly about that particular issue, right? They feel so strongly about that particular issue that when they see you do that, though you do have liberty, 
If they see you do that or they don't see you do something, let's play it both ways. They don't see you do something or they do see you do something and they feel so strong about that subject, but you do it anyway in disregard. You may deeply offend them or wound or anger them to such a degree where it really damages the relationship and stumbles the ability for them to have a healthy relationship with you long-term or respect you or maybe even stumble them in their own spiritual life because they are so bothered that you would actually do such a thing that they so greatly disagree with. So the point here simply becomes this. Our decisions in this area should not just be, can I do this? Can I do this? Am I okay with this? Our decisions should also always be, if I do this that I'm comfortable with, what impact will that have on somebody else? What influence could that have on another brother or sister in Christ? We should think through things in that way when we make these decisions. Well, the second thing I think we take notice of here is this, is that sometimes our indulgence in a liberty can also entice another person to violate their own conscience on that very thing because they follow what we do. Look what he says again in verse 10. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak become emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So some people who felt in their conscience it was truly wrong to eat that meat, and that's where they were in their conscience. They felt like, I cannot do that. I feel so uneasy. I want to please God. And to eat that meat, I feel like, would be dishonoring God. And they genuinely felt it was wrong for them. Paul says here, look, be careful. Because when you go pursuing your liberty and you're just freely eating the meat or they walk by and you give them a wave while you're there at the temple eating your filet mignon and they see you doing that, he says, what if in so doing you then embolden them to question what their own conscience is telling them between them and God. And then they say, well, I guess if he's doing it, maybe I, maybe I can do it. Maybe I should do it. And then all of a sudden, they become emboldened to follow what you're doing rather than follow what God may be telling them personally between them and God in their own relationship. And what we then do wrongly is we can tempt someone to ignore what God is telling them is right for them, you see? And then all of a sudden, they become tempted and pressured to follow your conviction or your perspective, which may be okay between you and God. But maybe they then embrace your perspective because they're stumbled by what you do. And look, that is not healthy because now I am stumbling my Christian brother or sister because what I'm doing is kind of pressuring them to follow what I do or take my conviction when my conviction may be something that if they go and follow my conviction may lead them down a slippery slope in a wrong direction for their own life. Or worse, I'm just teaching them how to ignore their own conscience where God's speaking to them and to do what pleases people rather than listen in their own conscience to what God is saying between them and him in their relationship. So Paul says, be careful of that. Look what he says, verse 11, and because of your knowledge then, the weak brother shall perish for whom Christ died. Imagine, actually, just because we want to indulge something, thinking it's okay, bringing the ruin and destruction of someone else's life. We should put more value on getting people to, uh, we should put more value on people than getting to do what we want in our particular way. This is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, have you forgotten in your pursuit of your privilege you're in, I'm entitled to do this. If I, want to, if I want to drink a beer, I can drink a beer. Or if I want to, and, and we want to pursue our liberty, but he says, is your liberty actually more valuable than another person's soul whom Christ died for? That you wouldn't be willing to deny yourself if that would be in their best interest in a particular situation? Think about it. If Jesus was willing to deny himself and suffer and die for someone's soul, you and I can't, from time to time, when it's in the best judgment of another, choose to deny ourselves to do what's best for someone else's soul. Consider that whenever you're entitled to selfishly kind of disregard what may hurt or wound or stumble someone else and say, look, this is how I think about this. It's what I want to do on this given matter, and they got to just get over it. Look, that's a rather selfish attitude. 
If Jesus was willing to deny himself to do what was in the best interest of us, isn't it pretty selfish that I would say, I need to do or I want to do this, and therefore, I don't care if it hurts someone else or ruins someone else, I, I just, I'm going to do it anyway. Jesus would never want us to do such a thing. Look what he says, verse 12. He says, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So what's Paul say? To selfishly disregard the interests of other people in order to pursue our own way and ignore considering them. Paul says in verse 12, the Holy Spirit through him, that's sinful. It's sinful. He says right there in verse 12, when you thus sin against the brethren, by wounding their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. To wound others by selfishly demanding my way on some issue or subject, to wound other people in the process is to sin against them, to hurt them. And worse, he says, it's actually sinning against Christ. Look, let me just say, if you've been guilty of doing this, stop. Stop justifying your behavior. Stop needing to have your own way and be right and make everybody else be wrong on the subject. And if you're doing it, you need to repent because it's selfish. You need to repent of hurting and wounding other people just to have your way and be the right one in a situation. And you need to ask the Lord to help you walk in love. And ask the Lord to forgive you and begin Philippians 2 again to consider not only your own interests, but what about the interests of others? That's what the Bible calls us to do as sacrificial people to walk in love as Christians. Look how Paul concludes, verse 13. Therefore, he concludes, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What does the mature believer do? The mature believer in a loving outlook adopts this mindset where they're willing, listen, willing to at times, if need be, refrain from their own liberty if it's going to in some way harm or stumble someone else in the process. They're willing at times to refrain from their own idea being the right idea that should be them getting their way because this is what's the right thing on this subject or matter, whatever it may be. They're willing to defer in love and say, you know what, if that's going to struggle, cause someone else to struggle, then I won't do it. Then then I I won't do that. I don't want to harm someone else in the process. How might verse 13, folks, look at it again, how might that apply in our life decisions? He says there, if doing this stumbles or hurts my brother, then I'm not going to do it anymore. Or if doing this is what stumbles or hurts my brother, then again, fill in the blank there. If this is what's going to harm someone else, then you know what? I'm going to make an adjustment. Out of love, I'm going to be willing to adjust to do what is in the best interest of other people. Listen, this morning, Can I have your attention for one final minute? Just because you have the right to do something does not mean it's right to do it. There are some things that matter. There are other things that really don't matter. Focusing on loving God and loving people, there is something more important in life than just being right and having the right to do something. It is doing what is right in the sight of the Lord and in love, doing what is right for the benefit and the welfare of other people.